you stare into the abyss, it must be because something in it calls to you. If the abyss stares into you, it must be because something in you calls out for it. Something in you that desires to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 208 of Embrace the Void, where we're trampling out some quality Grapes of Wrath vintage. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we will continue smoothly, really, from last week's chat on QAnon, so let's keep immunitizing that eschaton. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Philip Gorski, a professor of sociology at Yale and co-author of a forthcoming book, The Flag and the Cross, about white Christian nationalism. Philip, would you like to say hi to the voids? Everybody out there. Thanks so much for coming on, talking about one of my favorite depressing voidy topics. Um, I'm curious, before we get into your book and material stuff, do you want to sort of explain a little bit like what your uh, academic background is that brings you and, and why you felt compelled at this particular moment to write about an obscure topic like white Christian nationalism? Yeah, sure. I'd be be happy to. I, I think I need to add a little biographical prologue mm-hmm. to. So I spent my formative years in Wheaton, Illinois, which is the home of Wheaton College and has long been sort of a central uh, location in uh, American evangelicalism going back to abolitionism and mm-hmm. and the Civil War. So something that was always always around me and something that I sort of understood. And when I got to got to college and then to graduate school, it wasn't something that I uh, initially meant to study, but it was something that I understood was important, more important, I think, than, than many of my colleagues and, and other students understood. And also something that I felt like I at least had some kind of intuitive grasp of just because of, you know, my own, my own personal history. I first, though, really started out writing about topics that were much more distant. So uh, I spent mm-hmm. like the first 15 years of my career working on religion and politics in early modern Europe. And it was really, it's really only been over the last 15 years or so that I've turned my attention to the United States. And that was in part just driven by uh, things that I was seeing in America that I found increasingly troubling. Obviously mm-hmm. that has not changed. So um, and I guess it was also, you know, just the feeling that 
I should um, engage in some kind of public scholarship, you know, bring some of my knowledge and expertise to bear on things that other people were thinking about and just try to help deepen and enrich some of those conversations that were going on. Yeah, and this is a tricky topic because I feel like, you know, you're trying to have a conversation about a nightmare that we're all sort of publicly living through right now. And it's hard to say things about it that I that some in some ways don't feel obvious, but it is still important to like unpack the details and sort of apply these diagnoses consistently because I think you're likely to see a lot of pushback if you try to actually apply these diagnoses to sort of actors out there in the political world right now. So let, let's talk about your diagnosis a little bit here first. Um, you know, how would you, how do you all define white Christian nationalism? What is the like, I think you, you talk, you use this sort of theory of deep stories in the book when you're talking about it. What is the kind of deep story behind white Christian nationalism? Sure. So let me just back up a little bit and say what, and, mm -hmm. you know, define the, the idea of the deep story. This um, is, mm -hmm. is a term that was invented by uh, sociologist Arlie Hochschild at, uh, at, at Berkeley. You know, basically, this is the idea that um, we all in our lives inhabit stories and narratives that we've picked up uh, from the people around us, from authority figures around us, and that we may be kind of very explicitly aware of, very consciously aware of, or not. I mean, often not. Um, mm -hmm. So, like deep stories, or stories that are kind of deep in two ways. I mean, sometimes they're very sort of deep in our consciousness, and often they also have a have a very deep history. And I think both of those senses of, of depth uh, really apply to the deep story of, of white Christian nationalism, which goes mm -hmm. more or less like this: America was founded by Orthodox Christians. America's founding documents are based directly on the Bible or on other scriptural sources. For both of those reasons, America has been uniquely blessed by God with power and prosperity, and it therefore uh, has a kind of a unique role and a unique responsibility in the world. Uh, however, the, the, the presence of non-whites, non-Christians, uh, non-Americans on American soil endangers the special relationship and threatens uh, America's peace and prosperity. And so the way that we mm -hmm. solve this uh, solve this problem is by making America uh, a Christian nation again. And if this sounds a bit like make America great again, that's not an accident. Okay, great. So yeah, one of my questions was going to be, does uh, the Trump campaign count as a white Christian nationalist campaign? So can we go ahead and check that off as a, as a yes on the list? Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. I think this is something that, you know, some that, uh, you know, some folks sort of wonder, well, you know, how can that really be? I mean, you know, Trump himself is, uh, you know, hardly some kind of model or upstanding Christian, you know, the guy is completely unable to <laughs> quote scripture the way in which he's, he's they, no Mike Pence for sure. No, right? exactly. He's no Mike Pence. He's no George W. Bush. You know, he's, you know, not somebody who has like really strong Evangelical, evangelical bona fides. But if you look at the make, you know, make America great again is uh, kind of a deep story. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a nostalgic story about a loss of power and prosperity. And there are many ways in which the way that uh, Trump has tells that story has learned to tell that story resonate with uh, with white evangelical conservatives in America. 
Okay. And I think like, uh, you know, this is a story that a lot of us are familiar with because we've been struggling with it for, you know, openly for a long time and, and covertly even longer than that. Um, you know, so I'm not gonna, I don't think we need to necessarily work through all of the debunkings of like how America is not really a Christian nation. I think people can find plenty of that stuff in your, in your book and out there um, in the world. So I want to, I want to take this material and sort of parse a little some of the details um, that y'all I think bring up are that are really interesting and then talk about the application of this out in the out there in the world um, let me ask you this first of all do you have any sort of rough estimate based on your version of what you think of as white Christian nationalism for how many white Christian nationalists there are in America right now so it, it's a pretty significant proportion of the population. I mean, if you define um, white Christian nationalism somewhat restrictively, you know, sort of people mm -hmm. who really embrace the most, most fully its various tenets, it's probably something like 20% of the American population. Um, wow. You know, if you're talking about folks you know, then who also openly embrace various kinds of authoritarianism or white nationalism, of course, then then it's smaller. But you know, people who are sort of open to and receptive uh, to to this view of America, it, it's really it's it's a lot of folks. It's a lot of folks. And what you just that clarification you made there between people who you would identify as a white Christian nationalist versus people who openly self-identify as white nationalist is a really important distinction that I think y'all do a great job uh, kind of raising because, uh, as I understand it, it seems like the white part of white Christian nationalism is often sort of the quiet part that doesn't get you know doesn't get said out loud by a lot of folks. Um, can you explain a little bit why? You know, when you're talking about this issue, why do you call it white Christian nationalism and not just focusing on Christian nationalism, which would be sort of, you know, potentially less controversial or, or, or bring you, you know, bring more people to your conversation? Why is the whiteness part important, do you think? Well, l let me just say that uh, my co-author, mm -hmm. Sam Perry, and I, um, you know, we've both been writing about religious nationalism broadly and Christian nationalism specifically for a pretty long time. It's, but it's really only over the last, you know, four or five years, I think, for both of us, it's become increasingly clear um, that uh, Christian nationalism in the United States is really, really, really entangled uh, with whiteness. Mm -hmm. And... In the book, we show this statistically in the following mm -hmm. way. We, uh, we uh, take uh, Black Americans who affirm a lot of the tenets of Christian nationalism, and then we separate them out from, uh, from whites who affirm many of these tenets. And you find very different attitudes um, about uh, racial, dis racial discrimination, for example. So, you know, white Christian mm -hmm. nationalists think that whites face significant amounts of persecution and discrimination in the United States and that blacks face virtually none, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the more you believe uh, in the tenets, the stronger, the higher you score on our white Christian nationalism scale, the more likely you are to believe that white people face oppression and discrimination. And you contrast this with uh, African-Americans, there's no effect whatsoever of Christian nationalism. I mean, they tend to think that uh, that blacks face more discrimination than whites, and it doesn't 
there's no relationship with their score in the Christian nationalism scale. So there's, there's statistical mm-hmm. evidence that, that bears this out. And we do like a number of tests in the book, you know, different questions that, um, you know, that come up mm-hmm. pretty much with the same, same relationship. But I think the other thing that we came to realize, and you kind of already alluded to this, is that when people say Christian or when they say American, um, you know, what they oftentimes have in mind, consciously or unconsciously, is a certain kind of white native-born Christian. Um, I, I think when I first really sort of became aware of this, it was uh, actually during the the uh, the um, 2012 uh, the 2008 uh, presidential mm-hmm. campaign when Sarah Palin ran. It was sort of stuff that she would say about Barack Obama and a lot of uh, sort of uh, white, even conservative white evangelicals was sort of a piece of, uh, you know, somehow doesn't seem like a real American, you know, I mean, I, I kind of mm-hmm. think maybe he, he doesn't really understand America. Actually, I think he might be a Muslim, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I think that, and you know, you see this also in the way that oftentimes, um, People, if, if you raise this issue of race, where people say, well, I mean, I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about the American way of life. Or I'm talking about American traditions. Or I'm talking about American culture. I mean, what do they really mean yeah. by this? I mean, you can't, def- you know, the American way of, you know, what would American culture be without immigration? What would it be without the history of African-American religion and culture? It would be something very different. Uh, but that's not what they mean. You know, what they mean is a particular kind of white culture that they feel most comfortable in. Yeah, I really like this part because this was uh, in the book you talked pre- in, uh, in particular, I think, about Christian heritage as a term that is coded. It looks racially neutral on its surface, but has become become coded with sort of white Christian heritage. Now, th- like this kind of analysis is very interesting to me because I think if some certain individuals in reading your book would say that a lot of this stuff, a lot of your discussion about the history of whiteness and colonialism is very woke, right? It's sort of coded as this, like in keeping with the kind of social justice side of the culture war, the kind of critical race theory side of things that is trying to show that there is a lot of like systemic, racism still in the world and sort of what you're showing is that a lot of that systemic racism goes under goes you know sort of undercover of christian nationalism in this kind of sense do you i mean what do you feel about that characterization do you would you resist that characterization or do you think that that is somewhat accurate for your project you know of course in, in some ways i think you know the whole term and all discussion around it is, right. is just a Setting sort of a deflection of it's term, just a deflection right. and a red, red, red herring but you know I, I guess if i were defending myself i would say something like this if by woke you mean somebody who's uh has uh their eyes open to the history of racial oppression in the united states and the way that that uh, oppression created structures of inequality that uh, persist to the present day and that don't even necessarily require, uh, you know, sort of uh, full-throated shouting the N-word, white supremacist racism. Well, sure, I'm woke. And, you know, if by woke you mean, you know, somebody who used to kind of be asleep and suddenly opened their eyes and saw something that 
uh, they hadn't really wanted to see for a while, then, you know, I'm, I guess I'm also woke in that sense. And for me, as I think for a lot of, uh, you know, white progressives, the, you know, the Trump years really were, um, you know, an eye-opening experience uh, about, uh, you know, just how, how deep uh, the kind of real full-blooded racism still yeah. is in, in the mm-hmm. United States. I just don't think you can understand the backlash against Obama absent, um, you know, the kind of racial resentment that the black man in the White House stoked. Can you, I know it's hard to do without having your charts on hand, but could you maybe explain a little bit your methods of how you argued that using like, because I think a lot of folks, when they hear this stuff, they think, well, oh, you're just mind reading, you know, you're just mind reading about this term cultural Christian heritage or something like that. But I think y'all did it this really interesting way of trying to unpack how you could show that this was implicitly connected in these people's minds with whiteness. I don't know if you could maybe explain a little bit how you're able to show those correlations. Well, so the the first step, and this is really uh, the work of Sam Perry and his uh, an earlier co-author, Andrew Whitehead, in their book, Taking America Back for God, they developed um, a, a kind of an index. So they took a, you know, uh, about a dozen questions that uh, are asked on uh, one of the major social surveys, you know, where they sort of hinted at this idea that, you, you know, somebody like, do you really think America's a Christian nation? Do you think that... Um, um, you know, Christianity should have an influence on America's laws. Do you, this is a whole series of questions like this. Um, and, you know, basically use them to sort of say, well, you know, the more you take uh, a sort of a positive or negative position on the question in, um, on a particular question, the higher you're going to score on, on this index. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having constructed that index, then, you know, they and now more recently we um went around you know just running a bunch of regression models and saying well you know what is this significantly what is this significantly correlated with um and so i think mm-hmm. that in, in a sense is really sort of the sort of the strongest and most ir- irrefutable um evidence and there are of course you know ways of uh you know kind of probing indirectly you know for sort of racial animus because even on a survey mm-hmm. if you just ask somebody like so are you a racist do you hate black people you know i mean <laughs> obviously you know it's it's so normative to answer no to those questions uh and i think you know right. even people who might harbor those beliefs uh would not express them in public and perhaps not even admit them to themselves that you have to find uh, you know other ways of, of probing and these are often you know, kind of indirect questions about like the one that i mentioned about you know discrimination or government mm-hmm. benefits right so you know certain things that uh, have been come to be associated uh, in the minds of many white americans you know with the quote unquote you know kind of culture mm-hmm. of poverty or uh, you know the quote unquote moral failings of african americans yeah, and this indirect questioning method is obviously quite common for the reasons you were just describing when it comes especially to like morally morally sensitive questionnaires. Do you feel like using those alternative questions introduces a kind of a bit of uncertainty here that's just never going to be resolvable where skeptics of your view might say, well, look, those people still don't, you know, they're still not like white in the bat in the wrong way like there's all of those beliefs are justifiable and like don't show that they have some kind of racial animus or anything like that 
So I think uh, what we try to do in the book is just to assemble you know, many different forms of, of evidence mm-hmm. to make as strong a case as, you know, as we possibly can. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as proof um, in, in these mm-hmm. matters. Um, you know, you try to get at what's going on in people's minds. You, um, you know, try to get a sense of why they might have the views that they do. You look at the things that authority figures say uh you you kind of look at the kind of subtle ways in which people talk uh, about and and around race and and religion and you put that all together and i think what you wind up with is a pretty strong case that uh that there is uh such a thing mm-hmm. as as white christian nationalism and i think the pushback that we you know that we most often hear is like well you know um i don't know any people who are like this and I think, you know, mm-hmm. my response would be, number one, maybe you don't know some of the folks around you as well as you think you do. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, number two, um, you know, we have mountains and mountains of empirical data. And, you know, your, uh, your viewpoint, you know, your circle, your church, your neighborhood is one data point, And we have thousands of data points. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. the, the weight of the evidence for that reason is just very much on our side in making this argument. So I don't think it's it's an empty charge as, as some people claim. What do you say when we're, well, we're talking about pushbacks here a little bit, you know, a common refrain, I think when you bring up stuff like um, the history stuff, y'all bring up about the history of Christianity as a tool for perpetuating, you know, slavery and other sorts of injustice is that people will say, yeah, but Christianity also championed abolition and social progress and such. Um, how, how do you how do you feel like you best want to respond when someone sort of is defensive in that kind of way? I mean, I, w- I would immediately, you know, concede the point that um, mm-hmm. you know, many of the progressive social movements in the United States um, from abolition to suffrage to civil rights um, involved um, you know, significant numbers of churches and pastors and, uh, and, and religious lay folk. Uh, I think the thing to, to keep in mind is that the folks that they were battling against uh, were also overwhelmingly mm-hmm. Christian. You know, there were pro-slavery mm-hmm. Theologians. There were anti-suffrage theologians. There were, you know, preachers who preached against civil rights and for uh, r- racial segregation. Um, and um, so, uh, I, I think it's easy to concede that point, but it doesn't exonerate, uh, you know, Christian all Christians uh, from complicity in the history mm-hmm. of racial oppression in the United States. Quite the contrary. Something that I thought was particularly interesting that I hadn't read before, you know, one of the common problems you see in colonial and like oppressive situations is methods by which individuals can blur the lines between oppressor and oppressed, whether that's, you know, if it's a racially biologically based system, then like, um, you know, interbreeding can lead to that. But y'all talked a little bit about the particular way in which if your model is like, you know, Christians can oppress non-Christians, then you have this issue where conversions suddenly create this issue. If you have if you have a bunch of black Christians all of a sudden, for example, do you have a problem for sort of maintaining them um, as slaves? How did sort of the Christian theologians, the pro-slavery theologians of that period wrestle and, and try to avoid that kind of problem um, in their system? 
Yeah, so the, you know, the history of uh, kind of uh, pro-slavery Christian theology in the United States is a pretty, pretty fascinating subject. And one of the things that makes it fascinating is just to watch over time how the arguments shift and evolve, you know, always, uh, you know, in, in the end to legitimate the continuation of slavery or, you know, later of uh, racial exclusion, white supremacy uh, in, in, in different mm-hmm. terms. So, you know, the initial main argument for uh, for slavery is in, in within Christian theology and for that matter also within Muslim theology is uh, you can enslave captives of war and you can uh, enslave mm-hmm. uh, you know, heathens, right? And so, you know, both of those could be used as rationales and were used as rationales for the enslavement of, uh, you know, a kidnapped black Africans, right, who were often captives, have been captured by a rival tribe and sold to slave traders. Interestingly, it was also a rationale that could be used to essentially enslave Irish people um, mm-hmm. and send them in, and send them to the United uh, to the, the British colonies, um, you know, with some kind of uh, some kind of indentured uh, status. But, um, you know, various things happen. And, at, you know, at a certain point, you know, you as you mentioned, you know, one of the things that really creates a problem is, you know, by 1700s, late 1600s, um, you have increasing numbers of, uh, of um, you know, enslaved black people who are converting to Christianity. Uh, it's very difficult to say that any of them were captives of war. You know, many of them had been, you know, in right. uh, on North American soil for multiple generations. So how do you justify their continued enslavement? There are kind of two two arguments. I mean, one was, well, this is a blessing to them because, you know, we're going to there, we're going to raise them up to Christianity and uh, introduce them to civilization. Uh, and so it's a kind of a project of, you know, of kind of, up, of, uh, of uplift, right? Where we're sort of, up, mm-hmm. you know, we're lifting up this, this backward group. And then there was another argument that was taken out of scripture that uh, probably a lot of folks will be familiar with. And this is the, the infamous curse of Ham argument. Uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Ham has this curse placed upon his head um, and uh, is condemned by God to, uh, to eternal servitude. Um, and so Ham uh, uh, in some texts have been, um, some theologies have been, uh, identified with the African race, quote unquote, and so this then becomes mm-hmm. a kind of the theological justification for slavery. And then, you know, by the time you get to the 19th century, you know, then there's, uh, you know, there there are also um, kind of quasi-scientific arguments that are sometimes combined with biblical arguments. So a good example of this is there had been this theory um, for quite some time. That there were not, there was not one creation, but that there were two separate creations, and that Adam was part of the second creation, and that there was this mm-hmm. race of so-called pre-Adamites uh, who had no souls and uh, were not really exactly how convenient. We're not, we're not, we're not fully human, and so that argument had been bouncing around for a long time, and then um, it, you know by the mid 19th century and the run up to the Civil War. You, know, you start to have some kind of amateur scientists in the South who will argue, well, um, you know, it's very clear from you know, whatever evidence they cobbled together uh, that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Africans are not of the same race as Caucasians are not of, of the same race as, 
Asians, and uh, you know, this is just the, the infamous theory of polygenesis, the, the idea that there have been multiple creations. And this could be, and by some folks, was mm-hmm. combined with uh, with the biblical account. So, you know, it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's kind of amazing to behold the kind of creativity in a way uh, that's gone into reframing these, these theological arguments over time. Yeah, speaking of, if I may reveal one of my favorite laugh lines from the book, can you explain how Irish Catholics end up being classified as Native Americans? Yeah, so that's that really is a, really is a kind of an amazing amazing story, but wild, wild stuff. <laughs> yeah, literally, right? Uh, because it's because they're you know they're wild and savage. So it's important here to kind of. You know, we tend to, when we think of American history, we really think of it, you know, sort of as if it was this completely separate thing from European history, you know. Um, but the, the mm-hmm. colonization of America coincides with the conquest and the colonization of Ireland um, and uh, by, by, by the English. And um, it's really there, for example, that the whole idea of the plantation, right, they're planting new settlements there, this idea of the plantation evolves there. And they, they look at the, you know, the Irish Catholics as heathens. They look at them as another race. They look at them as backward and savage. Um, and, um, you know, some of the same folks uh, who are involved with these so-called plantations in Ireland then wind up uh, becoming uh, slaveholders um, in, uh, in, in uh, the British colonies in the U.S. And they literally think then of the Irish as a certain sense as Indians, right? And not in the sense mm-hmm. of uh, like a sort of a ethnic group or a race, but just, you know, these sort of backward heathen savages. Mm-hmm. It's just a very interesting blending of, like you were saying, race and religion and all these different, like there's not, there's not a, a clear sort of boundary between these categories in this way. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's, and that's, that's a very important point that you bring out is that, you know, race and religion have been mixed up in the collective imagination of the United States from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's pivot back from history a little bit to the present and see, you know, because I, I worry about the application of this and and sort of the pushback that you'll get. Because, I mean, so, for example, you're willing to say that Trump's um you know, election campaign was a white Christian nationalist project. I, I completely agree with you. I assume you would also classify his 1776 project, which, which I think you all talked about in the book some, which is mm-hmm. as, as a reaction to the 1619 project as also being white Christian nationalism, just sort of the, the pseudo historic revisionist version. Definitely has some very kind of white mm-hmm. Christian nationalisty tropes in it. And, um, you know, the, the folks who were really the movers and shakers behind that 1776 commission report, as you probably know, uh, were these folks at the, at the Claremont Institute, which is out in, um, you know, Southern, Southern California, um, you know, in Claremont, you know, mm-hmm. uh, associated mm-hmm. with the Claremont colleges there. And they've really become in a way, um, the folks who are kind of trying to polish the turd and put a certain kind of intellectual shine on mm-hmm. uh, on Trumpism, right? To sort of take what's certainly not an ideology. I mean, it's a bunch of kind of visceral, uh, you know, reactions and dominance gestures and sort of dress it up as if it was something mm-hmm. that was intellectually coherent. So it's no, it, it's no surprise. But I think that, you know, the 1776 thing is, 
really is important in another sense to understanding the white Christian nationalist story, right? Because Mm. this idea that America was founded as a white Christian nation in a way um, makes it possible for anybody who identifies as a kind of certain kind of white Christian to claim in a way that they were there from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. regardless of when, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, their relatives actually showed up um, in North America and therefore, um, you know, in a, in a bizarre way to put themselves, uh, you know, ahead in the line on the way to the American dream ahead of folks whose ancestors, you know, be they African or Mexican or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, have actually been on this continent far longer to say nothing, of course, as Native Americans. Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting, actually, because then the next person I wanted to ask you about has talked specifically about immigration and ethno traditionalism. So I'm curious. Um, in the book, you'll reference when you're describing ethno traditionalism, you reference Eric Kaufman, um, who, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, has argued for essentially race based immigration models that that privilege sort of white, you know, quote unquote, white society or white cultures or, or, you know, however he wants to classify them over um, these other kinds of groups on the basis of, you know, they will assimilate better and and so be more functional within current um, American society. Um, assuming that I have that correctly, and again, you know, if, if, if you know better, please uh, correct me there. Do you qu- classify that as white Christian nationalism? You know, you'll actually have to ask Sam that question because uh, okay. you know, that's really that's really Sam's uh, that's really Sam's bailiwick. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but I have not. You know, I have uh, I have the book, but it's one of those books I own but haven't haven't yet read, so I can't really say um, you know where Kaufman comes no down problem. or how it would classify him. Right. Fair enough. I'll uh, I'll save that one for Sam because he's definitely going to be on the show later, hopefully. So let me ask you then, um, are you more familiar with Rich Lowry, who I think y'all reference his case for nationalism in the book? Is that um, a, a white Christian nationalist work? Obviously, I think he probably doesn't include the white part out loud, but um, do you still think that it would qualify? You know, it's 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 tricky in you know in his case you know i don't think of him as somebody who is you know consciously or unconsciously any kind of a you know white supremacist um or 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 white nationalist but what i will say is that a a lot of conservative intellectuals um who have taken Mm -hmm. up this nationalist banner lately and lowry is certainly one of them what they've interestingly done is that they um, have backed away from an idea that they would have embraced that uh, many conservatives would have embraced not too long ago, which is that America is an idea or America is a set of ideals or America is based mm-hmm. on a set of principles, right? And, you know, a creed, there are different ways of talking about this, right? So it's based on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution or, you know, the writings of, of the founders or whatever. And what they've done is they're sort of subtly redefining um, America in an almost kind of blood and soil way. Of course, they don't say that. Uh, what, they, mm-hmm. what they do say is, you know, culture, tradition, mm-hmm. 
way of life, you know, that the people who are already here have, um, you know, a kind of priority over people uh, who might come later. And of course, um, you know, people who did come here later and, you know, without, without documents. And so I, I, I think it is a bit of a slippery slope towards, a, you know, a, a sort of a kind of real blood and soil kind of white nationalism, which is um, no longer fringe, um, as, uh, as mm-hmm. I'm sure you know. Uh, my favorite example of this, where this has really been mainstreamed, is uh, whenever this was earlier this year, when, you know, Tucker Carlson, um, you know, kind of mm-hmm. um, invoked this great replacement theory. And, um, you know, as, as you might know, I mean, this, this whole idea um, comes For from, sure. uh, Right, very fringe right-wing radical group of, of, of mm-hmm. French intellectuals, which is how they picked it up. And, and basically, the idea is that you know immigration is this elite plot to um, you know transform uh, the demographic composition of France or uh, the United States as a means of seizing political power and um, you know mm-hmm. um, taking away the patrimony of. Native-born, native-born white people. Um, so that stuff is not fringe anymore. And, and let's be honest. I mean, how far is that position from the one that Rich Lowry uh, enunciates in somewhat politer right. terms? It's not that far. Well, so this is the hard problem, I think, right? How do we talk about the right wing at the moment? Because, like you were saying, I, I get the impression from what you've said that you know in the past four or five years, right, you've had a bit of an eye-opening experience in terms of how much the whiteness is really involved in all of this. And I think Tucker Carlson has been sort of much more mask off about it recently with his trips to Hungary and things like that. Um, But, you know, do you feel like it's possible that like five years from now, you're going to be looking at like Ross Douthat and like Rich Lowry and saying why I, I should have gotten there sooner on you guys too. And like, what does that mean for like, there's nobody left in the, in the right. At, I mean, like in terms of, you know, reasonable quote unquote um, conservatives at this point, are they all kind of on this slope because the GOP has gone so far in on the southern strategy and stuff that like if you're gonna be in that part of the world this is the only game in town now it will be it will be a real test for a lot of these folks um i mean and it's a difficult position that they're in you know because uh, you know many of them are i think in a sense uh you know politically homeless uh you know a lot of the kind of never trump conservatives are in a sense kind of politically homeless. They don't feel entirely comfortable in the Democratic Party, and they certainly don't feel comfortable in in the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, people who used to be their friends, you know, don't want to have anything to do with them. I mean, they really are in a difficult position. But I mean, I think, you know, that we are sort of um, at a crossroads at the moment, um, you know, where Mm -hmm. people do probably really just have to pick sides. I don't think there's much middle ground left at this point, unfortunately. You know, I used to be more hopeful about that than than I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, but, you know, as far as people like Roth Dalvik, I don't think so. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, interestingly, um, I think the, some of the folks, who, sort of two groups of folks, I think have proved pretty resistant to Trump. And so, you know, one is people who are, 
really kind of deeply theologically grounded Christians. So Dalvid mm. is one of them. David French is another one. And there are other people like, you know, Peter Wader or Russell Moore, um, you know, really kind of have a thick theology and know the difference between Christianity and culture, between, you know, being Christian and being an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other group are, uh, you know, some of the former neocons, um, you know, somebody like Bill Kristol. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a lot of criticisms I could make of Bill Kristol's past foreign policy stances, believe me. But uh, I think a lot of the, the neocons were, in terms of all of their other convictions, liberal Democrats in the kind of this classical sense. And so they're quite uh, allergic to this. I think, you know, quite a few of them are also Jewish, including Bill Kristol. And so, you know, they, they're sort of, you know, the canaries in the coal mine. I mean, they can see, you know, they can, mm-hmm. you know, they can sort of smell the poison gas already, as it were. I mean, I hate to put it that yeah. way, but that's really how it is. And I'm so really I think they're more how the Lincoln Project breaks when the when Trump's not on the ticket. Like, is the Lincoln Project going to go against Josh Hawley or um, right. Ron DeSantis in right. the you know, next presidential election? I think is an important question. I agree. I agree. That's a great insight. It's a great insight. Yeah. I mean, much easier to be against Trump than it would be to be against DeSantis. That's for sure. It's that same problem that you and I are discussing with Lowry, right? Like, mm-hmm. how how much do you recognize that, like, the Trump-adjacent people are still a problem or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually asked you before the show, and I don't know if you had a chance much, um, but I, I sent you a link to a website for a group that I've been personally following on this beat for a while, which is a group called Sovereign Nations because of their connections to certain um, anti-woke culture war um, stuff. I was wondering if you had a chance to look at it and like sort of based on your system of analysis, what your feelings are about it um, in the white Christian nationalist spectrum. Yeah, so I did. And thanks for actually pointing me to that because that was not on not on my radar screen. Mm. Uh, there was, in fact, you know, a, a post on there, I think a pseudonymous post, actually, um, as, I, as I later learned, but about... Um, white Christian nationalism basically saying, oh, you know, white Christian mm-hmm. nationalism doesn't really exist. Um, I mean, a lot of contortions after that saying, well, you know, doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but we would need something like that. Not to say that I would be for that. Actually, white Christian nationalism doesn't exist, does exist. But, you know, I, uh, you know, I denounce that. It's a very odd, odd piece. I mean, I would, I guess the way that I would, if I had to kind of classify quickly, I would say, just as there was anti-anti-Trumpism, which was sort of mm-hmm. a way of supporting Trump without supporting him, mm-hmm. I think you're starting to see a certain amount of uh, anti-anti-white Christian nationalism as that term, mm-hmm. you know, starts to gain traction within public discourse, and that seems to me to be a lot of what you know what these folks are are doing. It's like, yeah, I'm Christian, yeah, I'm white, yeah, I'm nationalist, but I'm not really a white Christian nationalist. Um, you know, I have a sort of more principled position than that, but it's also very clear um, that they uh, would much rather throw their lot in with folks who are card-carrying white Christian nationalists and even white nationalists than uh, with secular progressives or you know other people who see the U.S. as a the future of the U.S. as a multiracial democracy. That's that's very interesting that you put it that way. I think I, I strongly agree because, you know, when I originally was talking about them, I was hesitant to put the white part on there because 
they sort of do the game of playing in the reactionary white politics world without sort of doing the like explicit, you know, we're for pro white nationalism or something like that. Right. It's, it's more like the grievance politics of whiteness kind of um, stuff. But I think, you know, when you add in like their open societies tab about George Soros and you add in some of the articles like you found and other ones where they basically say to be a conservative, you have to be a Christian. Um, and an earlier version of their about page had stuff about, you know, in, enshrining, um, removing heresy from the laws and enshrining sort of Christian doctrine within the laws that you can start to kind of um, piece this stuff together. I'm curious, does it does it change your perspective on them at all? If I were to tell you that the um, the person who runs it is a uh, Cuban uh, of Cuban immigrant descent and uh, likes to frequently reference that his wife is, I think, of Chinese descent. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't like totally shock me. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, for the following reason, which is that, um, you know, whiteness is and always has been a fluid category and the bounds of whiteness mm -hmm. um, have always been contested and, you know, frequently uh, moved. And so I think, you know, as, as I think sociologists of race, you know, social scientists study race, when they sort of look ahead, they say, well, the big question is, is um, there going to continue to be um, a two-tone racial order, you know, mm -hmm. white versus black with, um, you know, increasing numbers of, of Latinos identifying as white, you know, with Asians um, also identifying with whiteness, um, mm -hmm. right? Or are we going to, or, or are we going to wind up, um, with a, a sort of a more multi-hued racial order um, where they're sort of, you know, white, black, brown, and everything, everything in between. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think that's, that's an open question. And you, you can kind of see that, you know, in the fact, you could see that in the sort of surprising results, uh, you know, Texas and, and Florida, um, you know, where there were surprisingly high uh, levels of Trump support amongst Latinos in some places. I think mm -hmm. the other thing that's tricky here, uh, and this is a slightly different point, is that, uh, you know, an awful lot of social scientists, and I was, I'm guilty of this too, you know, I'm happy to admit, um, kind of for a long time tended to, tended to see Latinos through the lens of African-Americans, hmm. um, you know, as kind of much more monolithic and unified than they really are, you know, and, and sort of not, you're just sort of forgetting, you know, some of the really unique characteristics of, you know, the forced deportation, kidnapping, enslavement of African-Americans, which really did, uh, to a certain degree, cut them off from their homelands and memories mm -hmm. of their homelands and forged them into, you know, a group that, you know, went, you know, had these incredibly, uh, you know, horrific, but also in some sense sort of unifying experiences, you know, so there's a kind of a degree of, you know, identification, you know, which is just not the case for, you know, uh, you know, Latinos anymore, you know, it's, they come from many mm -hmm. different places, they arrived in the United States at different times, under very different conditions, they come from different class backgrounds, some of them are much more connected to their 
you know, their ancestral or home countries uh, than others and so on and so forth, right? And so why would we expect, mm -hmm. you know, them all to, um, you know, really sort of uh, vote as a, as a more unified block in the way that African-Americans tend to do? Um, yeah, so. and I, you know, I think it's valuable that that sociology has gotten better on not seeing any of these groups as monolithic, and that like, while there may be sort of shared commonalities, there is a sort of vast diversity of experiences happening in these groups. Now, one thing that I think is interesting, again, you sort of you've treaded back into woke territory here, which I think uh, is unavoidable when when discussing this stuff. But it brings up sort of another one of the like list of things that I'm curious about whether you qualify them as white Christian nationalism, which is this ongoing sort of moral panic around critical race theory and the discussion of race more openly and teaching about these kind of issues more openly in schools. Do you feel like um, in attacking uh, critical race theory in particular, folks like Chris Rufo and James Lindsay are essentially doing like explicitly sort of catering to this, this kind of white Christian nationalism that you've been talking about? Gosh, it's just really sort of almost hard to know where to start with this stuff, right? Um, you know, because it is, you know, it's Rufo himself has infamously admitted, you know, a kind of a completely cynical and manufactured campaign, which is you know, mm -hmm. really just, a, you know, just a way of, um, you know, uh, mobilizing folks uh, to agitate, white folks to agitate against any kind of serious uh, discussion or teaching about race and racism. And, in schools, right? I mean, that's really what this is. That's really what mm -hmm. this is about. It's about shutting down, uh, shutting down those those discussions by you know, kind of creating this, you know, bogeyman, you know, this frightening sounding bogeyman that's you know, supposed to have emanated from whatever the Harvard Law School to your, you know, to PS2 or whatever your local public school might happen to be. Mm -hmm. Um. It's certainly white Christian nationalist adjacent. I mean, I don't think there's mm -hmm. any doubt about that. You know, I mean, it does feed on the same, you know, kind of kind of grievance politics. And, um, you know, I am absolutely certain that, um, you know, if Sam and I were to put a, a question on a survey and send it out into the field asking um, mm -hmm. about CRT, that, you know, we would find that it's very that uh, you know sort of work concern about opposition to CRT is very highly correlated with white Christian nationalist views. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because you know, here's the other thing is that uh, you know there's an awful lot of white Christian nationalists who aren't really Christians in any particularly formal sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, they don't go to church very often. They don't know very much um, about Christian teachings or or doctrine. I mean, this is very evident, um, you know, like at the, uh, I think during the Capitol insurrection, you know, if, if you happen to uh, mm -hmm. sort of seen, you know, some of the slogans or the prayers and so on and so forth, they were, you know, they could have been invoking Zeus, right? You know, our <laughs> sort of, you know, our sort of Zeus battle god. closer to Trump in terms of a, a religious connection, actually. That no, would be a exactly. lot more Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at a little uh, little video clip. There's a nice, uh, you probably know, like somebody managed to sort of scrape mm -hmm. um, and archive all this data from Parler, you know, the kind of right wing Twitter. Oh, yes. I did hear about this, while. right? And there's a, there's a lot of video which people have been going through. And, um, you know, I was 
you know, watching, you know, one, one, one of these, one of these little video clips and it closes with, you know, with a, with a, these guys who are inside of the rotunda and they're, they're literally huddled as if, if it were a football huddle and somebody's got like a selfie stick that, that they've, you know, placed in the middle of the huddle. So that's pointing straight up at the, at the dome, right. You know, the sort of uh, metaphorical heaven of, of America's civil religion, if you will. And you know, then they're there. It's this prayer. It's like, you know, thank you, Jesus, for my band of brothers. Thank you for, you know, helping us fight for what we believe in. You know, thank you for bringing us to this place. And, you know, what does this have to do with, you know, the Christian God? Nothing, nothing. This could be, you know, again, it could be Zeus. You know, it could be your name, your generic battle God, uh, you know, Lord of hosts, you know, and might as well have been invoking that God. Uh, and then they sort of break almost as if it were a football huddle, you know, it's like with this little mm-hmm. shout. Um, so what I'm trying to get at though, is that there's, you know, there it's a very kind of thin kind of Christianity. I mean, it's just Christianity almost is like an ethnic identification, you know, or a cultural identification um, as much as any kind of religious identification. It doesn't have much to do uh, with the kind of things that, you know, people would usually associate with religion. You're having certain kinds of beliefs or, you know, engaging mm-hmm. in certain kinds of practices or, you know, belonging to a certain kind of community, right? It has very little to do with that. And uh, in, in fact, as uh, Washington Post journalist Michelle Borstein uh, kind of really laboriously and carefully documented a couple of months ago, it turned out that uh, overwhelmingly that, you know, the people who showed up at the insurrection uh, who could be identified and where you could, you know, through some, through research, figure out what their background was. I mean, very few of them had a real church affiliation of any kind or any kind of clear religious background. Um, you know, it was all kind of DIY as, as, as she put it. Yeah, it's very interesting, I guess, maybe with these kind of sort of, um, mega identities that people are developing in these ways they you know they don't have to necessarily have a deep connection to every part of it or maybe they don't even have to necessarily have a deep connection to any part of it like some of them maybe don't care much about the whiteness stuff and don't realize that they are reactive to it or are sort of caught up in it and like yeah they're just a kind of there is a very kind of superficiality um mm-hmm. to it a kind of almost a mad libsy kind of feel which i think is um, something you see very commonly within conspiracism, which is, you know, the content doesn't really matter that much, right? It's the behaviors, it's the the communal activity. And so like the Christianity stuff, I think doesn't, it's like it, it matters in their heads, but it, like the details don't matter, right? It's, you can fill it in with feelings, which is another like big American evangelical thing, right? That like, it's more about what you're feeling in the moment necessarily than like, deep scriptural um, analysis or something in the, in your books, you you mentioned as well, you know, you tied in um, other moral panics like PC, the political correctness stuff and like the cancel culture stuff as well. What role do you see them playing in this sort of white Christian nationalist um, ecosystem? Yeah. So um, this is, this doesn't wound up in the, on the cutting room, Floor, but you know, in an mm-hmm. earlier draft of uh, the flag and the cross, we introduced a second term, which is white Christian individualism. And um, mm-hmm. you know, this this is the idea that a certain kind of white 
native born man is in a sense kind of the you know the the defender uh, of freedom and uh, the enforcer of order and you know the person who is entitled to to use violence and so remains in the book mm-hmm. with this what we call this holy trinity of freedom order and violence right that you know men are fighting for freedom and against disorder and they're entitled to use violence to do it and that that sort of nexus you know you can really sort of emerges um in a kind of violent conflicts on the frontier on the plantation uh in, you know in in the empire but it's also something that is there and you know in popular culture mm-hmm. I and mean, whether you're talking about you know jack bauer in 24 or whether you're talking um about you know mel mel gibson um in um why am i forgetting the name of this movie um the one about the the sort of the scottish rebellion against the english oh braveheart, uh, braveheart. Brave, braveheart. yes um, classic <laughs> right so th- those are sort of like paradigmatic embodiments of this you know they're you know what is you know, mel gibson's dying cry as you know he's being burned it's at the like stake by the freedom and mm-hmm. um you know what did the english do you know, they brought disorder you know they raped women they burned villages and um mm-hmm. you know so you know uh, and this is you can find a similar you know kind of you know narrative in um you know like many westerns or many kind of post-apocalyptic movies i mean it's, it's something that's very deeply there in in in, in american pop culture. So circling back to these ideas of political correctness and cancer culture. So what's really going on there? I mean, these are amongst other things, uh, sort of ways of claiming a special kind of freedom for certain groups of people. It's like, Mm -hmm. I want to be able to talk about other people the way I want to talk about other people. I'm not Mm going to be told what words I can use about, you know, those other people. And least of all, you know, you who are not a sort of a white native board of man are not going to tell me what sorts mm-hmm. of language um, I'm allowed allowed to use. That's that's oppressive. You're taking away my rights. Um, I mean, of course, uh, you know, the, the thing about uh, the way this works kind of politically is that, you know, that's a sort of defensive strategy. The offensive strategy is white Christian nationalism. So when, mm-hmm. you know, when, uh, when white native board men are claiming their rights, it's, you know, it's in the name of freedom, right? Mm-hmm. When other people are claiming those rights, um, you know, those are denied in the name, you know, of national solidarity or they're denied in the name, um, you know, of, it's violating the rights of, uh, of the white native board men. So that's, that's a lot of what I think is going on, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, the, the stuff about cancel culture and, you know, and, uh, uh, political correctness. I mean, it's not to deny that there's not problematic stuff which is going on, and you know, some corners of some campuses, and you know, certain corners of Brooklyn and Oakland, mm-hmm. you know, where some people go overboard with this stuff and you know get carried away and kind of social media mobbing. That, of course, is indeed all all happening. But you know, sort of on the the list of ills that afflicts the current, you know, the the current day United States, I think it's pretty, pretty low. 
And I, yeah, and I think the stuff that y'all talked about that you brought in there, we didn't get a chance to talk about it as much on this, but I'll, hopefully I can chat with Sam about it some. The, the 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 correlations between freedom, order, and violence, I think, are really interesting um, and not sort of intuitively obvious that I think y'all do a great job um, unpacking that. So before we do run out of time, and I do have to get you to the enlightening round as well, two last things I wanted to ask here. One is, you know, at this point you've laid out a... a a what essentially is a kind of end times death cult that is a large percentage of the population that is willing to storm the capitol building that you know all of these kinds of things how do you calibrate your level of concern with regard to this group in a way that doesn't feel like catastrophizing that doesn't feel like doing what they're doing essentially in sort of in terms of sort of seeing this as a kind of existential uh, cultural crisis in this kind of way. How do you how do you feel like you avoid um, ending up becoming like the thing that you are discussing? Well, so I think you know, the first thing to say is, you know, as a kind of amateur historian, historical sociologist, you know, wh one thing I I know is that um, history is open and contingent, and it depends a lot on on what people do. Um, you, know, you can mm -hmm. see certain outcomes, but, you know, looking forward, but which of those outcomes uh, becomes reality depends a lot on what people do. And so I don't think there's there's anything inevitable, um, you know, about the death of democracy um, in, in, in the United States. Um, do you have any thoughts on how it, to deescalate with a death cult at this point? Uh, I, I, I think it's I think it's difficult. You know, I mean, it's yeah. almost a job for so I, one thing I will say is that. Um, the people who will probably have the most power and sway are not secular progressives. I mean, they're mm -hmm. religious conservatives and political conservatives. They're sort of pastors and politicians who have a principled commitment to liberal democracy and uh, cultural pluralism. And, you know, those are the folks who could actually de-escalate things. I mean, nothing that, you know, some quote, woke Yale professor says is going to change hearts and minds of, a, of you know, the vast majority of these. Of it's these, hard to get optimistic folks. about that model, though, given what you just said about how thin these people's Christianity is a lot of the time, right? Like, if they're getting their Christianity from YouTube preachers rather than, like, a flesh-and-blood preacher down the street in a, like, genuine community relationship, it feels like they're very isolated even from the people that you're describing there, right? Like, those, those folks are almost as far away from them as the progressive elites in the cities, right? It's true. Um, but, you know, I think there are, you know, there are grounds for hope, right? I mean, there are some folks mm -hmm. who have taken principled stands, um, even if it's not a huge number of folks. And I'll just go back to my hometown of Wheaton, Illinois, which is home of Wheaton College, which is, you know, some people call it the evangelical Harvard. It's in any event, you know, one of the best Christian liberal arts schools uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. home to the Billy Graham Center. It's where you know, kind of flagship magazine Christianity Today has uh, published Tyndale House, uh, you know, major Christian publisher. They have on their philosophy faculty um, a critical mm -hmm. race theorist, like not, mm -hmm. a, you know, a quote critical race theorist, but like a guy who really does critical right. race theory. They have 
uh, as their most prominent New Testament scholar, uh, you know, an African-American uh, theologian named Yusuf Macaulay, you know, who writes frequently for, for the New York Times. And so, you know, I, mm-hmm. I see, I think there is also, especially, uh, you know, in some circles and among, especially amongst younger folks, um, you know, a growing awareness of the problem. I mean, the degree to which, you know, some of uh, the leaders in their parents' generation have just sold out their church and their faith for access and power. And mm-hmm. they do not want to have anything to do with that. So that's a sign, you know, that's a sort of a sign, sign for hope, I think. And, um, you okay, know, it's a possibility of some de-escalation. That's fair. Um, so before I get you to the lightning round, are there any, and while people are waiting for your book to come out, which they should totally pick up, are there any other resources that you would recommend folks check out on this subject that you think are um, really illuminating? So, uh, you know, there's a number, there's a number of great books out there that are, mm-hmm. are on this. I'm just going to name a, a couple of them. Um, one book that probably some of your listeners have heard of is Christian Kobes Demez. Jesus and John Wayne, greatest title ever, obviously. <laughs> uh, there's Anthea Butler, White Evangelical Racism. There's, of course, Whitehead and Perry, uh, Taking America Back for God. There's Jamar Tisby, uh, the you know the Color of Compromise. Uh, shout out to Jamar, who's writing the foreword uh, for the Flag and the Cross, and uh, you know many other titles out there. Um, so if, if this is something that um, you you want to dig a little bit deeper into, there really is, uh, you know, a fair number of sort of books out there. And I, I recommend these books because they're all, they're written by people who have, you know, serious academic credentials, but they're written by people who know how to write and know how to express their ideas clearly um, and communicate um, in a jargon-free way. So any of those books would be a great place to start. Great. I know lots of folks in our listenership will be interested in diving into this more. So I really appreciate that. Um, unfortunately, that means that now we've come to the part where I have to torture you. So Please. this this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I will give you a list of things. You will tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You can't hedge. You don't have to explain what the word real means. Nothing like that. Just real or not real. Okay. Do you understand? Got it. All right. So let's check. First of all, we always like to prime the pump here. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. Uh, The external world, real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Real. Free will. Real. Selves or persons. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Real. As you might notice, I'm a, I am a, I am a, I am an epistemal, I am a, I'm a hardcore realist. uh, I know. I'm noticing quite a realist trend here so far. It's impressive. Uh, Species. Real. Morality. I'm going to say not real, but only because I draw a distinction between ethics and morality. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Uh, Rights. Hmm. 
I guess I'm going with Bentham on this one, not real. <laughs> Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Ooh, I'm really tortured on this one, I got to tell you. Um, <laughs> I'm noticing your gaps are increasing. You, you, your uh, confidence levels dropped off st- st- uh, quickly here, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll, 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 I'll go with Pascal and say real on this one. Oh, <laughs> fucking Pascal. Uh, society? Real, definitely real. Money? Real. Numbers? Hmm. The tricky one. Hmm. I guess if I'm really sticking by my realist guns, I'll have to say that's real. They're they're real as well. All right. Fictional characters. Hmm. Not real. Hmm. Holes like a hole in the ground. Not real in any deep sense. Okay, chairs. Real. Mm, sandwiches. Very real. Science. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, the measuring stick of what's real. Oh, natural laws. Mm. Probably not. I'm gonna say I'm gonna mm. go with not real on natural laws. Okay, beauty. Yes, real. Love. Definitely. Causality. Definitely. And finally, time. All right, I'm gonna go real. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the uh, <laughs> the edge of the sort of uh, the the sort of avant garde physicists here and say not real. Oh, fancy. All right, you survived. How do you feel? Not bad, but you know, you all that you really just succeeded in sort of outing me as a as a kind of a very deep metaphysical realist. I know you're gonna get, you're gonna get so canceled by philosophy Twitter for this. This was great. I really appreciate it when you do that. Um, yeah, it was good though. I was interesting. Um, I appreciate your citing of some of your answers. That was certainly an amusing addition to the practice. Um, so, Philip, do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time um, and Twitter handles and such? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you can find me um, at Gorski Philip uh, on Twitter, and you can find you know some of my work at uh, philipgorski.com or you know on ResearchGate or Academia Edu. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Cool. That was my pleasure, Aaron. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, Rambo Billy and Joseph Wilfred John Fitzpatrick III, Barrister and Solicitor. Thanks to two new yearly pledge patrons, Trent Nauer and Alistair Cunningham. Really appreciate that commitment to the eternal void. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Need More Camus, and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers, Cormot Orkman on Twitch, 
Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Super Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, and maybe even subscribe to both and leave them a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just four bucks a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, in the absence of any alternative, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.